One could argue that the modern Oscar bait began with how the deer hunter was marketed in 1978. Producers knew that they had a product that would yield critical acclaim and a bunch of awards, but it was still a three-hour movie about PTSD that was made less than 10 years after America pulled out of Vietnam. There was concern that, masterpiece or not, audiences would be reluctant to see something that was obviously a lengthy, crushing bummer of a film. So, the studio gave The Deer Hunter a limited release in a few dozen theaters in December, just enough to qualify for Oscar consideration. It then went into wide release in January, exactly when The Deer Hunter was starting to get showered with critical accolades and getting nominated for every major film award that one could name. This spurred the public into buying tickets, so the Deer Hunter earned a tidy profit in addition to getting enough statues to start a chess set. The Deer Hunter didn't change Oscar season overnight, but by the 90s, this was an established path for promoting and releasing a Hollywood movie that the studio was actually proud of. Populist mega-hits still occasionally got Oscar attention. Goodwill Hunting had to compete against one of them, but this strategy is still used today and it still largely works. Goodwill Hunting was written and directed by relatively unknown talent, and it had only one big star in its cast. Producers knew that they had a winner, but they felt that the Deer Hunter strategy was needed. So it didn't hit the screens at a suburban mall until after it got nine Oscar nominations. This helped it make over 200 million off its 10 million budget, and it made writer, actors, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck into superstars, which is a pretty big success story, aside from that populist mega hit it was competing against. So, for this episode, we are going to be dissecting Goodwill Hunting, picking it apart, seeing what makes it tick, and what made it connect with audiences to begin with, other than that deer hunter strategy I just mentioned. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me for this one, been a while since you've been on one, my sister Sarah. Hey guys! And uh, also here is Sylvan. I am here. Alright, both of you had never seen Goodwill Hunting before, and Sylvan doesn't seem to be terribly impressed. Yeah, it never piqued my interest at all. I figured it was one of those movies that I was going to watch and be like, I can appreciate that this is well made and that other people like it, but it's not my cup of tea. And I was right. I thought it was pretty boring. Sarah, you're a hot take. So this is a really important movie to my fiance, Nicole. And so she really wanted me to see it. And I had seen a few like clips floating around online. Like I'd seen the bar scene with, you know, the yuppie. Yeah, how do you um, like them apples? How do you like them apples? And I had seen the bench scene with Robert Williams, but I hadn't really. It's not a bad movie, but I don't see why it's like heralded as being so amazing. It's kind of a basic plot line and they had Minnie Driver and they really didn't give her a whole lot to do and she's amazing. It was like her third movie. Yeah, so I don't know. I wasn't as I feel really bad because this is so important to Nicole, but I wasn't as impressed with it. Well Nicole saw it as a very formative age based on what I could glean and you saw it just now in your early thirties. Mm-hmm. I could see this being a much bigger deal if you saw it as a teenager. Maybe. I really liked Matt Damon a lot as a teenager. Yeah, and you were immediately oppressed by his uh, floppy, handsome boy 90s hair. He reminded me of um, the oldest brother on um, Home Improvement. And what the hell was his name? Brad or something? Brad, I think, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Every hot boy in the 90s had that. Leonardo DiCaprio had a similar haircut. Uh, at some points, my hair has done that, and I've enjoyed it, because I did want that hair when I was a kid. My hair has done that, and I didn't enjoy it. 
Yes, but you're not a guy. No, yeah. <laughs> um, I would ask for a pixie cut, and then I'd come out with that haircut. I mean, and which is fine, because that just makes me look queer, but it, it's not what I ask for. All right, and now that we have the very important 90s heartthrob hair uh, conversation out of the way, I'm going to do the plot recap. All right, this film centers on 20-year-old Will Hunting. The recap I copy-paste said he's from South Boston, but it's fucking Southie. You see, he's a natural genius who is entirely self-taught in whatever the movie needed him to be in. He's, like, really good at revolutionary war history, chemistry, um, physics, mathematics. He can't play the piano. That's the first time he admits that he's not good at something. He's got a photographic memory. Well, he won't admit that and he has a, one. And he's a speed reader. Anyways, he works as a janitor at MIT, and he spends his free time drinking with his friends Chucky, Billy, and Morgan. When well, they have names. Yes. When Did not pick that up from watching the movie. I picked up Morgan's name. I picked up Chucky because uh, Sean says Chucky's not a soulmate. He's family. He'd lay down in traffic for you. Oh, I thought right. that was a memorable line. But is Chucky Ben Affleck? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, when Professor Gerald Lambeau posts a difficult mathematics problem on a blackboard as a challenge for his grad students, Will solves the problem anonymously, stunning both the students and Lambeau. As a challenge to the unknown genius, Lambeau posts an even more difficult problem. Uh, Will flees when the Professor Lambeau catches him writing the solution on the blackboard late at night. I'm like, yeah, go fuck yourself. Very Southie. At a bar, Will meets Skylar, a British woman who is about to graduate from Harvard, who plans on attending medical school at Stanford. Stanford. Uh, this is the scene mentioned earlier by Sarah where uh, Affleck's character is flirting with her, but this other guy is being really condescending and throwing all of these obscure, esoteric, revolutionary war uh, economic theories at him. And then um, Hunter jumps up and dresses him down, and well, he gets her number. How do you like them apples? I still like that scene. It's not a bad scene. Their accents are bad, but um, <laughs> other than that, it's, it's not a bad scene. If Goodwill Hunting has nothing else, it has one-liners. The next day, Will and his friends fight a gang that contains a member who used to bully Will as a child. Will is arrested after he attacks a responding police officer, but uh, at this point, Lambeau has tracked him down and sits in on his court appearance and watches Will defend himself. He arranges for him to avoid jail time if Will agrees to study mathematics under Lambeau's supervision and participate in psychotherapy sessions. That one was mandated by the court. Will tentatively agrees, but treats his uh, therapist with mockery. In desperation, Lambeau calls upon Dr. Sean McGuire, his college roommate, who now teaches psychology at Bunker Hill Community College. Unlike other therapists, Sean actually challenges Will's defense mechanisms, and during their first section, Will insults Sean's deceased wife, which causes Sean to threaten him. But after a few unproductive later sessions, Will finally begins to open up. This is one thing that you thought that was psychologically accurate. The whole idea of the therapist just sort of sitting there and having nothing happen in the session because you're waiting for the other one to open up? Uh, yeah, so my fiancé works in mental health. Um, that is actually a technique that therapists therapists use it's actually really common with adolescents so yeah they just sit there and they're like all right this is our session for today and they wait wait him out yeah i mean he should have been fired for the choking thing before they got to the sitting and waiting it out but so the choking isn't recommended by therapists is no, it no no it's not within the but in a movie setting it really helps you get through to the troubled young protagonist Right. Letting him know that you are not, in fact, like other therapists. Although I I would like to note, it, the movie 
seems to be shitting on Bunker Hill for being like the worst school to end up working at. Bunker Hill's actually a really good school. Like it's, I know it's not Harvard levels of good, but it's also like not. So you're saying lay in brick, there's honor in that. <sighs> Woof. Will is particularly struck by Sean's story of how he met his wife, who later dies of cancer, by giving up on his ticket to the historic Game 6 of the 1975 World Series after falling in love at first sight. Sean's explanation for surrendering his ticket was to see about a girl, and he insists that he does not regret his decision even after all of the pain of her final years. Uh, this encourages Will to build a relationship with Skylar, although he lies to her about his past and is reluctant to introduce her to his friends or show her his rundown neighborhood, particularly his crappy-ass one-bedroom apartment. Will also challenges- Oh, to have a one-bedroom apartment in Boston. Yeah, I know, no fucking kidding. Well, I mean, it's 1997, it's- a little more realistic for somebody who is uh, working class to afford real estate in that area. Uh, Will also challenges Sean to take an objective look at his own life, since Sean cannot move on after his wife's death. It had been about two years. Lambo sets up a number of job interviews for Will, but Will scorns them by sending Chucky as his chief negotiator in this ridiculous scene where he's wearing, like, this flashy suit and, like, t insisting on, like, a $75 retainer. He also turns down a position at the NSA with a scathing critique of the agency's moral position in the military-industrial complex. Skylar asks Will to move to California to, with her when she graduates, but he refuses and, and at this point tells her that he's an orphan and that his foster father physically abused him. Uh, Will breaks up with Skylar and then storms out on Lambeau, dismissing the mathematical research he has been doing, literally setting it on fire at one point. Sean points out that Will is so adept at anticipating future failure in his interpersonal relationships that he is deliberately sabotaging them in order to avoid emotional pain. Chucky likewise challenges Will over his resistance to taking any of the positions he interviews for, telling Will that he owes it to his friends to make the most of the opportunities that they will never have, even if it means leaving one day. He then tells Will that the best part of his day is a brief moment when he waits on his doorstep, thinking that Will has moved on to something greater. Will walks in on a heated argument between Sean and Lambeau over his potential. Sean and Will then share and find out that they were both w uh, victims of child abuse. Sean helps Will see that he is not the victim of his own inner demons and to accept that it is not his fault, causing him to break down in tears. Will accepts one of the job offers arranged by Lambeau, and having helped Will overcome his problems, Sean reconciles with Lambeau, deciding to take a sabbatical to sort his life out. Will's friends present him with a Chevrolet Nova for his 21st birthday so he can commute to work. Later, Chucky goes to Will's house to pick him up, only to find that he is not there, much to his happiness. Will sends Sean a letter telling him to tell Lambeau that he had to go see about a girl, revealing that he passed on the job offer and instead heading to California to reunite with Skylar. The last line in the film is Sean going, Son of a bitch stole my line which was ad-libbed by Williams. Damon liked it so much that he insisted that that be the last moment in the film. It sounds like Robin Williams did a lot of ad-libbing in this movie. Robin Williams does a lot of ad-libbing in most of his movies. In fact, the genie in Aladdin is just him improvising dialogue for 12 hours and then them whittling it down. I'd say that's obvious. I remember that. 
All right, development for the film. Uh, Matt Damon began writing Goodwill Hunting as a final assignment for a playwriting class that he was taking at Harvard. He named the love interest after his own girlfriend at the time. Her name was Skylar, and uh, she gets a shout-out in the film's credits. That's really sweet. Yeah, the scene where Will meets his therapist for the first time was in there from the jump, and it was not altered at all. It's verbatim from the first draft. However, the rest of the story was heavily altered when Damon asked his friend Ben Affleck to help him polish the story into a screenplay. To give you an impression of what it was, the first draft, which was completed in 1994, centered on an unusually smart street punk from Southie who gets recruited into the NSA and then puts together dangerous spy missions. So he was just supposed to be like James Bond? <laughs> Damon sold this version of the script to Castle Rock Entertainment for $675,000. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, and that was in 1994 money. Castle Rock president Rob Reiner encouraged Damon to drop the NSA component and focus on the relationship between Will and his therapist. At the suggestion of Terrence Malick, Damon and Affleck ended the film with Will following Skylar to California instead of having him, like, storm through the airport and having them leave together like it was an 80s rom-com. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to move on in the genre. I prefer the ambiguity that's in the film because, I mean, Will put Skylar through a lot. I don't think it's obvious that she would take him back after all that shit. Leaving that in the air is probably the smart choice for the film. I like to hope that she has already moved on and that he's going to get a big ol' rejection when he gets there. Well, um, that's assuming his car makes it to California. Yeah, that's a pretty big... We were talking about that. I don't think he's making it to Orange, let alone California. (laughs) Orange is a city in western Massachusetts, for those of you who are not from here. Yeah, Boston is eastern Massachusetts. It takes three hours to cross the state. At Reiner's request, William Goldman read the screenplay and gave some suggestions to Damon and Affleck. There is a persistent rumor that Goldman, who's a script doctor on dozens of films, secretly ghostwrote the entirety of Goodwill Hunting. I don't know if you know who William Goldman is. I don't. He wrote The Princess Bride. Oh! I do not feel like this movie has that much in common with The Princess Bride. Goldman attributes this rumor primarily to nobody believing that two handsome young actors could write a movie as good as Good Will Hunting, especially since they didn't write too many things later on in their careers. He adds that he wished he'd written the movie, but that he probably wouldn't have written the therapy scenes in quite that way. Goldman then makes a couple of uh, snarky remarks about how uh, in movies every single therapist seems to only have one patient. And he thought the scene where he keeps saying it's not your fault and that they end with hugging was um, professionally Oh, it's unprofessional. It's unprofessional. It's breaking his therapeutic rapport. Um, It's a big no-no. You don't do that. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, we were very firmly in movie land there. (laughs) Although, if he thinks the hugging is the worst thing that Robin Williams does as a therapist, I still maintain it's grabbing him by the neck and throwing him against a wall. Yeah, yeah, no, the choking <laughs> scene is it's a, it's a little tough to watch. Well, he didn't grab his ass, so apparently that didn't cross the line. Right, right. Uh, Goldman predicted that he would be credited with writing Goodwill Hunting in his obituaries. He wasn't, but his cheeky denials that he's made over the years did make it into several obituaries. Well, then. Will was initially a physics prodigy in the earlier drafts, but physicist Sheldon Glasshow persuaded Damon to switch to mathematics, and then he recommended uh, his brother-in-law, Brian Greene, to uh, consult on it. Both of them are credited in the film. 
Castle Rock, wanting established actors like Leonardo DiCaprio or Brad Pitt to take the lead roles, sat on the script and it languished for years in development hell. Ultimately, Affleck and Damon were put in a position uh, where they had to find 30 days to locate another buyer that would be willing to reimburse Castle Rock for their investment, or they would just be cut loose entirely. None of the studios that expressed prior interest in Goodwill Hunting were excited about it anymore, things had cooled off. Affleck, however, had found a good working relationship with writer-director Kevin Smith, who had cast him in Mallrats. Right. He showed Smith the script for Goodwill Hunting in desperation while they were working on Chasing Amy together. It impressed Kevin Smith, and he took it to Miramax head Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about this fucker. Well, I mean, if you're listening to this in the distant future, and the names have become fuzzy, it'd be nice if people had forgotten about him. Uh, Harvey Weinstein was the head of Miramax, and throughout the 90s, is one of the most powerful executives in Hollywood, and used that position to sexually assault dozens of women for decades on end, and finally got caught and uh, uh, arrested and put in jail around 2018. But yeah, he's involved in a lot of movies, some of which are going to be featured on this podcast at some point or another, so I'm going to have to mention his name. Ugh. As a test, Affleck and Damon added an oral sex scene between Will and Chucky on page 60, just to see if anyone at the studio had bothered to read the script. They knew that Miramax was serious about the film when Weinstein told them that the blowjob scene was superfluous and needed to be excised. <laughs> Affleck initially asked Kevin Smith to direct the film. That would have been something. That would have been a very different movie. But Smith declined because he felt that he, d he wasn't a good enough visual stylist for the story and that he would make Goodwill Hunting very boring. Uh, Weinstein pushed Mel Gibson, uh, who was briefly interested in directing. Oh, no. Weinstein even had Affleck and Damon uh, lie to Gibson about how much they loved Braveheart at a lunch meeting in order to butter him up, but uh, Gibson eventually lost interest and moved on. Ben Stiller was also approached to direct, but uh, he turned it down because he, he didn't know any of the actors who were involved. Stiller later said that he considered turning down Goodwill Hunting to be the worst professional mistake he ever made. Michael Mann, these random ass directors, got involved and things got to the point where Mann was shooting test footage of Affleck and Damon. However, things collapsed when Mann slowly realized the Goodwill Hunting wasn't a gangster movie. <laughs> oh. Like he was expecting any minute now for like guys to get start getting shot in the back of the head like in every other like drug deal gone wrong movie he had made up to that point. Wait, it's just guys talking for two hours? Pass. Talking about their feelings? or not talking about their feelings. According to Kevin Smith, Gus Van Sant was always Damon and Affleck's first choice. They had loved Drugstore Cowboy, and they had eventually uh, twisted Weinstein's arm until he hired him. Goodwill Hunting was shot on, on location in the greater Boston area, and if you're from here, it's a fun game. You're like, oh, hey, I've been there. Oh, hey, I've been there. I know where that place is. Yeah, that extra is clearly from here. Right. Well, I feel like there weren't enough Dunkin' Donuts cups and, like, Red Sox and Bruins t-shirts. So, there were a lot of Celtics t-shirts, which is confusing because the Celtics were losing. All of our teams were losing in the 90s. Yeah, the Celtics hadn't been relevant. Larry Bird retired in, like, what, 1992? Yeah, and so there were, like, some really hardcore fans, like, you know, our dad, but, like, a lot of the kids started to, like, Michael Jordan, and... Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here. I suffered through the Antoine Walker era. Right, so, you know... And, uh, yeah, there's a part where, like, Affleck goes to dunks and he gets a small. Like, who the fuck gets a small? Well, elderly people do. Yeah. 
A lot of the interior scenes were shot in Toronto, I guess because it's just cheaper. This is one of the few films where they actually filmed inside of Harvard. Harvard usually says no, but John Lithgow got involved and convinced them to let it happen. What? John Lithgow used to go to Harvard, and I guess he's friends with people at Miramax, so he was able to put in a good word. Oh, well, isn't that an interesting influence? Uh, the Boston Public Garden bench that Will and Sean chat became a temporary shrine to Robin Williams after his death. Which is very sweet. Yeah, some people wanted to build a statue of Williams there, which I think would have been a bit much. Oh, you mean like the statue of Bewitched in Salem? Yeah, I don't want to see Robin Williams ride a moon on the Boston Public Garden. <laughs> Damon and Affleck cried in joyous disbelief the first time that they heard Williams and Stellan Skarsgård recite dialogue that they had written. It was the first time that, like, big-name, popular, well-known actors who had been in things were saying things that they had written down earlier. It felt very surreal to them. Yeah, it's as I mentioned already, Williams ad-libbed a lot in this movie, uh, in particular the fart monologue. Uh, Damon's laughs are genuine, and even the cameraman lost it. If you watch the scene carefully, you will notice that the frame shakes. <laughs> Alright, now it's time to talk about the cast. I figured we'd open things with Robin Williams as Dr. Sean McGuire. This part, interestingly enough, was written with either Morgan Freeman or Robert De Niro in mind, to the point where Affleck and Damon were imitating their vocal cadences while they were putting it together. I can't really picture either of them. I mean, I guess... Hmm. I thought that um, Robin Williams' vocal cadences in the movie, like speaking of, were kind of interesting. It's like every now and then he tried to drop a hint of a Boston accent, but mostly he had his typical, like, over-enunciating actor voice going on. So I, don't, I know his character was supposed to be, like, from a working-class Southie background that him and um, Will could bond over. So I was wondering if that might have been, like, intentional like he developed a therapist voice or something i wouldn't rule that out because he only really rules his r's when he's bitching about his tab at the bar right right and he goes into this like super boston like oh when he's narrating the 1975 game and acting like he had been there and then drops the bomb that he blew it off to uh meet this woman who wound up becoming his wife yeah yeah a whole lot of selfie in there i appreciated that because you know obviously everyone knows robin williams was an amazing actor but that was him like really developing the character then by having him have like different layers of his voice and his accent based on how he's presenting himself and then also it keeps him from overdoing and hamming up an accent that is not his because we have heard many people fail with the Boston accent in film. Which is interesting because, you know, Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon and Casey Affleck are all from here, so you'd think that, like, you know, their accents would be genuine, but I imagine people just told them they had to, like, turn it up a notch too many times, and that's why they, like, overacted it. Yeah, through this you were comparing it to The Departed because, um, you know, there were a whole bunch of Boston people there, too. Damon's in that one, Marky Mark's in that one, and their accents are shit. Whereas Jack Nicholson's not even bothering to try, and, and Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio nails it. Yeah, his accent's fine. It's the guys who are from here are doing the Larry the Cable Guy exaggeration. And you're like, why? Chris Evans doesn't do that whenever he's on screen. 
And next person we're talking about is uh, Matt Damon as Will Hunting. I guess we have to lay it down here. Uh, this is the role that turned him into a superstar. Uh, he had one lead role beforehand. He was in The Rainmaker, which was a mediocre Francis Ford Coppola legal drama. Uh, one of the only reasons that Goodwill Hunting got funding was because Matt Damon was in The Rainmaker, and then it was like, oh, okay, he's apparently a leading man. We'll fund this movie. He's kind of a dick. Yeah, there's this part where um, Sean is insisting that Will Hunting is a good kid, and like Sylvan's like, is he though? And I, I think that his performance was fine in playing a woe is me, I'm self-centered, and why does anybody love me character. You know, it worked. He was a really annoying white cis boy. Well, and he, he had so many different magical talents that he was, like, so good at, except for couldn't play piano. Um, and no emotional intelligence. Zero. Literally zero emotional intelligence. Like, how is he going to get her back? He's not going to get her back. I do think that Will Hunting is maybe a step away from characters like Dr. House, where it's like, my autism gives me superpowers. Yeah. That being said, I do think that Damon's performance is, as that character was very good, and I am not surprised that he became a superstar after this. Oh, yeah, I've oh. met people like him, and I generally, like, I mean, I don't have any problems with Matt Damon. He seems, you know, like a charming kind of guy. Did not like the character, and I attribute that to his acting. I think he did a good job. <laughs> I've never heard anything um, off about Matt Damon that he's done anything terrible where we, you know, have yeah. to not like him anymore. So I think he does a good job at playing a dirtbag. I remember a couple of years ago he was um, voted like people's sexiest man alive and he gave a very sweet interview where he's like, yeah, I told my wife. And she was like, yeah, you're still doing the dishes though. He's <laughs> like, aw, he's regular guy, isn't he? Or he's good at presenting that way. Yeah, good for him. And then we have Ben Affleck as Chucky. This is, his accent is all over the place. <laughs> it is the most. It's, it, it, it truly sounds like somebody who is not from here trying to do our accent and failing at it. And it's not even our accent, because we don't really have that thick Boston accent, but we know people who do, we're related to people who do. I have been told that my accent is super thick from people who, uh, by people who aren't here. I don't notice my own accent. Hey, listeners, gentle listeners who are not from here, how much of a mass hole do I sound like right now? I have no idea. So I've worked in tourism in Massachusetts for the past, like, 17 years, and I will say that my accent, like, becomes stronger when I'm around people who aren't from here. It's like I hear the way they're talking, and then suddenly my R's disappear. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Maybe I'm Mayor Quimby right now. <laughs> I do think that Affleck gets some fun moments. The, the scene where he's, like, pretending to be Will's agent or whatever, that was a little silly, even in a film that has a very heightened reality like this. But I do think that his monologue where he's saying, like, I'll kill you if you're still working construction in 20 years, that's I a liked good moment. That part. And Will being a difficult shithead for most of the movie, that, that part getting through to him, I enjoyed that scene. Yeah, you could tell that they um, really had a strong connection. The chemistry for uh, Damon and Affleck on, on screen has always been wonderful, but yeah, you can really see it in those scenes. Affleck has been frequently criticized as being a lousy actor, but I never really thought that way. I always liked him in the Kevin Smith movies, even when the movies didn't quite work, and I do think that he's given good performances elsewhere, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of that in Will Hunting, if you get past the way he talks. 
Mm-hmm. And I how mean, many his, times he says the R word. Yeah, he's one of the more interesting characters in the film. I paid more attention when he was on screen. All right, next up we have Stellan Skarsgård as Professor Gerald Lambeau. So, yeah, speaking of people who are doing a pretty effective job playing a douchebag. And it's interesting because you would think that he was really concerned about the boy's future, but, like, he just wants to use him as, like, oh, look at the prodigy I found. I can fund all of these projects. And also, like, they, they weren't subtle with this point, but his character also has no emotional intelligence. So it's like, I would want to do all of these things. Therefore, he wants to do all of these things. Yeah, and he is a condescending, insecure prick who's trying to cross ethical boundaries with his younger female students. Yeah, that bit about, you know, want to meet for a drink afterwards, and her being like, haha, maybe, that made me uncomfortable. Or he's, when he's talking about how equations have an erotic component to them. Ooh, when he's waiting outside the therapist bleh, office. Bleh. <laughs> And he's just throwing it around because he knows there's not going to be any repercussions for it. He's in a position of power. He has a Fields Medal. What the fuck is a Fields Medal? I've never heard of it before. They explain it in the movie. I know, but like... It's like a Nobel Prize for math. Is it real? That's awarded only once every four years. I have no idea if it's real. Okay. (laughs) I was going to say, I've never heard of it, so... We also, all three of us, are not big fans of math. No, that is true. <laughs> we might respect the character a little more if we didn't all hate math. No, that's not true. We wouldn't respect no, him more. No, he's still a douche. Actor does a fine job portraying an elitist academic douche. And it's not like those aren't in the humanities as well. All right, moving on. Mini Driver is Skylar. She's such a good actress, and they really don't give her much to do. She just giggles a lot and then cries because she loves him. Does not pass the Bechdel test. I think she's the only woman in the movie that speaks. <laughs> well, there's that no, lady no, who's... there's the lady in the bar. Yeah, there's the lady in the bar, and there's one, the, the two that the professor's hitting on. Uh, Harvey Weinstein didn't want Minnie Driver in the film. He felt that she wasn't pretty enough. Oh, fuck him. She's gorgeous. Affleck, Damon, and Van Sant thought that Weinstein was nuts, and they fought like hell to get her in the movie. They thought that she was an asset, and that she would heighten every scene that she was in, and they thought that she played off Damon very well. That's yeah. true. Yeah, she doesn't get nearly as much to do as the male characters, but um, I do think that the scenes where, you know, they're talking together, uh, having Pillow talk about how she hasn't met any of his friends, or the, the bit where she breaks down after trying to get him to move to California with her, I found those scenes to be very affecting. Mm. And I think that's largely because of Driver. It just kind of, you know, reminds me of all of the friends I have who have fallen for less awesome dudes than they should have. So I appreciated her character and her acting was fine, but the character made me angry. Like, women are encouraged to settle for such shitty, shitty partners. Yeah, she made me sad. Here's hoping that when he, if he manages to get that heap to California that she tells him off. Uh, Yeah, I would like to see that. As I told you, there's only one proper Goodwill Hunting sequel, and it is Goodwill Hunting 2 Hunting Season from Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. <laughs> and that is a gunfight in which Skylar is not present. Because she is off doing better things. Yes, she has figured out that part of her life. 
All right, for the music for this, the score is by Danny Elfman. He had worked earlier with Van Sant in To Die For, and would reteam with uh, Van Sant on Milk, Restless, Promised Land, and Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. So, more often than Sam Raimi, but not as often as Tim Burton. Gotcha. Elfman's score, while it did get a lot of award recognition, it was not commercially released in full until 2014. Why so long? I don't know. Um, there were only two cues on the soundtrack album, which focused on the songs that appeared in the film. I don't think that this is one of Elfman's best. I wouldn't put it up there with like Edward Scissorhands or Beetlejuice or Nightmare Before Christmas or Batman Returns. For him, it's pretty understated. Yeah, it's yeah. it's subtle in a lot of bits. It's mostly just like, you know, twinkling piano and some oscillating strings and all that. There aren't too many Elfmanisms, at least none that I would recognize. Yeah, no, most of the time you're noticing the songs by Elliot Smith. You're not really paying attention to anything else. Speaking of which, Elliot Smith. We get one track from Roman Candle and three from Either Or uh, in a new song, Miss Misery, which was added in order to give them something to submit to the Oscars. And this is one of the few times where the freshly written song for Oscar contention actually works. Miss Misery is often seen as Smith's best song, or at least his most widely known. Either Or is uh, Nicole's favorite album. Elliot Smith is a sensitive singer-songwriter, strummy guitar type, has a lot of folk chops. His guitar parts are a lot more difficult to play than they initially appear to uh, a, a basic untrained ear, but he also has this really probing, sensitive falsetto. Um, just about everybody who was part of the scene at the time, um, Kurt Cobain, members of Sleater Kinney, would talk about how they would just openly weep into his shows. They're very small and very intimate. And uh, Elliot Smith became way more famous than somebody like him should be. I think when people were talking about his later records, where he had a budget it was just like his first two albums were like strummy guitar singer songwriter stuff and now you give him a full band and what the hell is he gonna do with it not that he didn't make it work but it was weird and it was weird seeing him get famous to the point where he's sharing a stage with celine dion yeah and didn't like the fame get to him and he killed himself uh he did commit suicide although i don't think the fame helped but he did have a lot of pre-existing medical conditions and a drug history and if you listen to any of his albums Albums, that's very apparent. Yes. Yeah. It kind of made me think of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is a small, understated western that ends with a big shootout, but throughout the whole thing, you get a bunch of Leonard Cohen songs stuck in there, and you're like, what the hell are these Leonard Cohen songs doing here? But then, eventually, I, I start getting into it. I guess because it's like sad boy music, it works, because he's a sad boy. Elliot Smith does make sad boy music, although, I mean, I'm speaking purely anecdotally here, and it could just be, like, a poor sample size. All of the biggest Elliot Smith fans I know are ladies. Hmm. Well, ladies do like sad boy music. Yes, 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 you do. <laughs> For the release and reception for this, uh, reviews were almost universally positive. There were a lot of remarks about the story being predictable and unrealistic, mm. but usually tempered with how the performances elevated the story. Uh, there were also lots of comments about how there were a bunch of fun Bond mots and one-liners in this, which I think largely checks out. Uh, there was high praise for Robin Williams, especially in regards to his chemistry with Damon. 
Yeah, that is true. They have a great chemistry on screen together. I think that's primarily what sells the film. All right, it got a whole bunch of award uh, nominations and wins. I am not going to name all of them, just the Oscar bits. It got Oscar nominations for Best Original Song, Best Original Score, Best Original Screenplay, Best Editing, Best Supporting Actress for Driver, Best Supporting Actor for Williams, Best Actor for Damon, Best Director, and Best Picture. Wow. Uh, it won for Best Original Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor. It lost most of the other ones to Titanic. So that's not fair, you know, to go, to have, that's your first movie and you go up against Titanic. That's gotta be rough. Also, this is the only time the driver has been nominated for an Oscar. Really? She didn't get nominated for an Oscar for Phantom of the Opera? She worked Why her would ass- she have? She worked her ass off for that movie. She eh. didn't even do her singing. True. There are other things that Driver did that should have gotten attention more than Phantom of the Opera. Well, I'm just... I mean, I'm not saying she wasn't delightful in it, but I wouldn't think of that as being, like, an Oscar bait role. Mm. Yeah, Elliot Smith was occasionally asked leading questions about My Heart Will Go On, but he always deflected to how nice Celine Dion was to him and how she held his hand and gave him a pep talk when she noticed that he had jitters before performing on the Oscar telecast. Oh, that is sweet. And whenever somebody said something mean to uh, about Celine Dion, on, he would cut them off and say, no, she's a little weird, but she's a nice lady, and I like her. <laughs> she's a little weird, but she's nice, so be be nice. Williams, for his part, said that uh, the Oscar didn't really change things too much for him. For the next few days afterwards, everybody would approach him saying, like, hey, congratulations on Goodwill Hunting. And then a week later, they were calling him Mork again. Yeah. <laughs> you know I've never seen Mork and Mindy? I... I saw a little bit on Nick at Night, I think, when we were kids. Meh. Yeah, none of it really stuck with me. Although I do really enjoy the Happy Days episode that Mark is on, and, like, he and Fonzie have, like, a cool-off. Aww. Alright, so, now, it's time to talk about themes. White boys are so sad. First thing I wrote down was masculinity. It's so fragile. And how fragile it is? Yeah. Yeah, be careful with that masculinity. As Rachel mentioned a bunch of times, if a movie is mostly about dudes, no matter what it is and what it's purportedly about, it's about masculinity, because it kind of has to be. The title of the film itself is a play on words. Will is hunting for the good version of himself, and he clearly doesn't know what that is. So deep. So deep. <laughs> you, and how old is Matt Damon at, like in, in real life? when this movie was being made. He is playing a 20-year-old. He was 26. Yeah, so that, yeah, that tracks. And he was like 23 when he wrote the movie. Right, so that, that tracks, yeah. Boys are taught to be strong, dependable, and stoic, and it can be a struggle to overcome this programming and grow into somebody who is responsible, caring, and emotionally available. And doesn't mock somebody for having a dead wife. Yeah, like, why? What a shitty person. Somebody made fun of one of your paintings at a formative age. No, no. Why make fun of someone's dead wife? A defense mechanism, he's trying to push him away. There are other things that you can make fun of about Robin Williams. I mean, his hat, for one. (laughs) Yeah, but the hat wouldn't work. They they were doing back and forth, sparring. This didn't work. Yeah, Sean was meeting him on his foot, and then he was like, you know what, painting dead wife choked him out. Hey, that's that's ground. It drew them closer together, so it also didn't work. It was just shitty. Yeah, the conflict between Will and Skylar comes very clearly, nothing nothing in this film is subtle, from his fear of opening up to her and allowing himself to be vulnerable around her. Because once you let someone in, it becomes much easier for them to hurt you, and it usually happens unintentionally. 
Once again, this is basic stuff, but, you know, if you're a 15-year-old kid in 1997, this might be the first time a film has said this to you clearly and in a language that is on your level. That is true. That doesn't explain all the grown-ass adults throwing awards like best screenplay at this. Like, I, I mean, I can see how you would, what you had said about, like, the um, performances elevating the material shines through, but if it won for screenplay, like, the dialogue itself did feel very, like, college course writing my first screenplay, which essentially is what it was. Indeed. You know, I should have looked up what it was competing against. I don't know if Titanic got nominated in that category. I know the other one that got a whole lot of nominations in 1997 was L.A. Confidential, but that was based on a book, so it would have been in a different category. Uh, yeah, uh, that leads me to my next point. Victims of child abuse blaming themselves. That's mentioned in the uh, film's climax. Because a common psychological injury suffered by victims of abuse is that they no longer believe that their boundaries are worth respecting. And almost every victim of childhood abuse, sexual or otherwise, has laid some of the blame upon themselves. It's common for them to wonder what they did to bring such a thing upon themselves. You know, because maybe if they behaved differently or dressed differently or, you know, moved a different way or maybe if they were more present or maybe if they were more hidden or whatever it was, things wouldn't have gone the way that they did. Right. Yeah, because that was Will's background. He, he was an orphan. He went through a succession of foster homes and the foster care system is just as broken and shitty in 1997 as it was today. So yeah, yeah. it's not implausible it's a, it's that... 50-50 shot whether or not you get a good one. And so. yeah, as Sean himself put it, he was abandoned by the people who were supposed to love him the most and that gave him things that he was still carrying as a supposedly grown-ass man. You know, I actually really appreciated that they said something about attachment disorder because, forgive me, I actually have some knowledge of this stuff now because I uh, am engaged to a social worker. So yeah, that's exactly what he would have is an attachment disorder. The fact that he diagnosed himself before Robin Williams could even like get there, that was pretty clever. That took some research. And getting back to uh, things that feel kind of basic to us, but might feel insightful to a 14-year-old who's approaching these themes for the very first time. The bits about not blaming yourself for childhood trauma and actually acknowledging it and admitting that these things are terrible and they happen to you, but it's not your fault. That ties into the masculine impositions of being stoic and stuffing these things down and powering things through and not allowing yourself to be vulnerable and to trust people in that way because they might hurt you later. It uh, kind of goes into, hey, if we taught our young boys these sorts of things at formative ages, maybe they wouldn't be in these positions where they so frequently hurt themselves or hurt the people around them. Yeah. Because, well, once again, this seems like 101 stuff to us, but there are large swaths of the population around us who don't internalize stuff like this. Oh, yeah, I mean, we're having kind of an epidemic of violence from people who look kind of like Matt Damon in this movie. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was scrolling through my phone at the end, and we actually have white supremacists. We had a white supremacist march in Boston today. Oh, ho well, hopefully they were outnumbered like they were in, right after the Charlottesville thing. 
Speaking of which, next and last topic I wanted to bring up was class divides. Because as I was describing the basic plot to Sylvan on the way over here, Sylvan was like, so there's going to be some classism in this film, is there? Just a tad. Working class. They're the good guys. Ugh. I did kind of appreciate that by the end, though, their, you know, speech from Chucky about, like, fuck you, live up to your potential. <laughs> right? Yeah, a lot of people have framed Goodwill Hunting as a sort of extrapolation of the Irish Catholic animosity to Protestants that, you know, obviously originated in Northern Ireland and then transferred over to Boston. The working class Catholics, you know, like Chucky and Will and so on, against the Protestant-coded academics at Harvard and MIT. Mm. Just the way they conduct themselves, the way they act. Very few of the um, academic people at MIT uh, have have the Southie accent or any Massachusetts diction in their voice. Even Skarsgård's character, who is supposedly from here. Oh, he was supposed to be from here? Well, I, I guess that was implied, because he was Sean's roommate, but, you know, maybe he was an out-of-towner and decided to hang around afterwards. Yeah, um, just because somebody was your roommate in college doesn't mean they grew up from in, in the area. Yeah, I suppose. Austin has a lot of schools. So many. And there's a lot of transplants. Yeah, Southie is portrayed as this rough, impoverished, dead-end, willfully ignorant, and casually cruel and callous area, where male bonding is built almost entirely upon just horrid insults, which... Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. The academics, on the other hand, are portrayed as arrogant, pretentious, and oblivious to the ugliness that can come with their accomplishments, which is highlighted in particular in the NSA scene. The only fragment that remained from that period where apparently Will Hunting was going to become a secret agent. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that all fucking tracks. <laughs> By this perspective and framework, Sean is seen as something of a moderate balance. You know, he's a studious reader, a dedicated teacher, and hey, he, he even paints as a hobby, even if it's a shitty Monet knockoff. Although, uh, I think he negatively compared him to Winslow Homer as well. Well, and then he told him to cut his ear off, so... Yeah, there's a little Van Gogh in there. That's because there was some arbitrary use of color on the waves. At least mm -hmm. that's what I was picking up. Still, Sean's a Southie boy through and through. He already mentioned that uh, he starts dropping his R's when he's at the bar. Ted. On the other hand, I don't think Sean is a pure role model. He does go through a character arc himself where, you know, he realizes, hey, my wife's been dead for two years, and while grief is a thing that I'll be carrying with me for the rest of my life, I should be trying to build a new life for myself regardless. He's not put together either. He still has more to do. Still, at the same time, I think the lesson at the heart of that is that Will can leave the violence of his youth behind and, and indulge in his intellectual passions without abandoning the positive elements of his life thus far. Right. And, uh, yeah, I think that's something that the film is trying to communicate. Okay, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything that either of you would like to add about Good Will Hunting before we close this out? I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered it. My last thought was that um, I expected the movie to take kind of the easy way out on the classism of like building up the working class as being the awesome heroic type and you know like maybe more of a like like how you said that that um, airport ending would have been total 80s movie rom-com like an 80s simplification of good guys and bullies and it was more nuanced than that at least so I appreciated that in their uh class analysis. Both sides had shitty facets. Yay. 
You hear that? Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were definitely listening to this. Sylvan <laughs> was willing to admit that at least one corner of your old film from when you were children and wrote this has some nuance to it. So, hey, you can feel good about that. Like, real, actual Oh, children. yeah, I'm sure they would totally value my opinion if they ever heard it. Oh, sure. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time. <laughs>